My name is Blake Rogers. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Christ Covenant. I've been here at the church since the, since the beginning, and, t- and today's actually a very interesting day in the life of the church for me. This is actually my last day. This is actually my last assignment as a staff pastor uh, here at the church. I'll continue on, you know, serving as a lay elder, uh, but as I mentioned in the, in the earlier services today, uh, I'm going to join the likes of, uh, I see John Bridges in here and other lay elders who with unbridled tongue can say what they want in the elders meetings and since I'm not being paid anymore. And so uh, anyways, it, it's, it's great to be here. Um, certainly today as, as I was pulling in uh, to, the, uh, to the stave room, I always kind of come in the back area back here. Sometimes it's just a little pro tip. Sometimes it's unlocked. And if you're struggling to find a place real close, you can just kind of whip in there. And I'm not going to be on staff anymore, so I don't have to deal with telling you to move or anything like that. But you can, it's pretty easy. It's a great little spot right back here. But as I came in um, this morning, um, I, I, it, I, it's just very nostalgic. I, I walked in and, and I saw uh, guys like Cruz Hall and others who were setting up the kids area, the Covenant Kids area. Um, readying that space so that they could pour into uh, the little children that God has gifted our church here. Uh, I've got three of those children, and I know how much they have been blessed by just the simple uh, efforts of service that go on by this church family. And so I just want to say thank you for all of the many ways over the last five years that y'all have ministered to me and my family and the future for how you'll minister to me and my family for the last five years of being able to show up and give my vocational energies to a place like this has been very, very special. Um, and I'm extremely uh, grateful for it. But I had the, pr- the task of preaching uh, today, which I am extremely excited for. And one of the challenges whenever you get dropped in to the preaching schedule is you have to figure out what to preach, right? We just finished a sermon series last week. We're gonna start a sermon series next week led by Jason. Um, And so you have to figure out what to preach. And um, my wife will tell you that I'm a context person. Uh, We'll be sitting around the table a lot at dinner time and she'll, you know, she'll say a name, you know, Uh, maybe it's Amy or Vicky or someone, someone like that. And, And immediately when she says this name, all of the people that I know who, who share those names come to my mind. I'm like, babe, you've got to give me the last name too so I can figure out who we're actually talking about here. I just need context and I guess it's, it's maybe just how my brain, how God has wired me and how my brain functions. And so uh, in, in order to, to preach well, I, I felt like I needed to reopen the sermon series that we closed last week and extended a week. Because I think there's something really important um, that we need to discuss today relative to our life together. And so we're going to extend this Life Together series, and today we're going to be talking about a hidden life. So life together, a hidden life. Over the last several weeks, we've learned many of the the biblical exhortations for what a church family uh, should look like. And so we, we, we discovered that we should pray for one another, and Jason taught us what that looks like. Uh, We learned uh, that we should confess sin to one another, and he walked us through what that should look like, that we should live in harmony with one another, and that when one of the church family members has fallen, that we should seek to restore one another. This is what it looks like to live in a church family who seek to apply this gospel of grace that we're banking our entire lives on. Finally, last week, we looked at 
the fact that we need to provoke one another uh, to faith uh, in good works. And, and we really believe, your pastors really believe uh, that, if, that if you do these things well, that if you show up consistently, that you open up to the church family, that the spirit of God that is at work in all of the brothers and sisters that are a part of this church family, as you show up and you're around those people, that God will use that in great ways in your life, that he will shape you for your good and his glory by showing up and being a part of the community. But at the same time, as I was reflecting on the sermon series and I was thinking about what I ought to preach today, a warning kept coming to my heart and to my mind. And it's a warning of this capacity that we have as human beings to have hidden lives. This is a story, or this is a warning that comes from, from stories of friends that I've had. Friends that were saved around the same time that I was, who, who came up through com- to youth group in the same group that I was in, who, who launched out and then left the faith. They were around the family. They were a part of the family. They were growing seemingly and serving within the family and yet they did not persevere in the faith. There was something going on in their heart that maybe they didn't even understand at the time, but time revealed and they walked away. This is something that I've seen over and over again, but it's also a caricature of a person who plays a really important role in redemptive history. And it's a man named Judas. Uh, Many of you know the man named Judas. Uh, I'm I'm talking about the man who was named among the 12 disciples, who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who left everything that was normal to him to go and follow Jesus. And yet, in time, the hidden life of Judas was revealed. It was revealed that Jesus actually wasn't all that Judas wanted. Jesus wasn't actually all that Judas needed. And so we're going to talk about this today. In fact, Judas, he was, he was of those who was given the gifts of healing to act on behalf of our Lord as his kingdom was advancing. Judas, he was given the authority to, to proclaim the, the, that the kingdom of God was at hand on behalf of our Lord, and yet He is of those who will say to God, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And Jesus will look to him and say, depart from me for I never knew you. This is a weighty thing. And I want us, as I continue to live life together with y'all, as we live life together with one another, just to be aware of this capacity within ourselves to be deceived and to disingenuously associate with Jesus. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles with that introduction, will you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26? We're gonna, we're gonna look at a few uh, sections of, of Matthew's gospel where he describes for us some of the things from Judas's life that we are most familiar with. But we're gonna look at these things tonight uh, and we'll look at Matthew 26, verse 14 to 25, and then 47 to 50. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, no problem. If you can see through the sunlight that I know is like in some people's eyes over here, we've got it uh, on the TV for you. Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, 
what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have for us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, said, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. And then verse 47 of the same chapter. This comes after Jesus was with some of his closest disciples praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read this. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of, of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. This is the word of the Lord. So today as we unpack this story, there's really four things uh, that I want us to to think about. Um, You know, the gift of narrative in the the Bible, I think is something that's very intriguing to me. You know, a lot of times the the Bible, um, it, it, it speaks words of encouragement to us. If we're in difficult times, it's you know, there, there's a word of encouragement to be found uh, in the scripture. It exhorts us. And certainly there, there are ways that we, as we live out this Christian life, we continually need to be exhorted. But there's also stories that just serve as warnings. And these warnings are really meant to press us onward in the faith, not to scare us, not to necessarily wonder, hey, am, am I the Judas boogeyman that might be in this picture? That's not it at all. There's nobody that I have in mind in this congregation when I think about Judas, okay? But this, this story is a particular warning for us because how narrative functions in the Bible is there are characters and caricatures. And it is through these characters that we, we don't judge them as people who have always done the right thing because we haven't. We've not earned that right. We are fallen. We are sinners. We are in need of God's grace. But what we are to do is to learn from these characters, are there any things, are there things in my life that were present in his life? How am I like Judas? How much do I need Jesus? And so as we think about the life of Judas, 
within that context, there, there are four things, and they should be up here, here in just a moment. First of all, a hidden life only seems hidden. A hidden life only seems hidden. Second, that there are particular signs of a hidden life. Third, a hidden life ends tragically. And then finally, an unhidden life or a transparent life, as Lou Priolo likes to say. An unhidden life ends gloriously. So point number one, a hidden life only seems hidden. You know, to hide is to be human. One of the first things that we learn about humanity uh, through the story of Adam and Eve is that they fell, they rejected God's word and were deceived by the serpent. But then their response to that was what? The text says that they sought to hide from the presence of God. And they went into the trees. They went amidst the trees. They, they literally sought to leave God's presence. They tried to hide. Why? Because there was guilt and there was shame for what they had done. And they, and they didn't understand what the judgment for their actions, what that would actually look like. And so in, in the face of all of that uncertainty, with all of the shame and all of the guilt for doing what they should not have done, when it weighed on them, their response was to preserve themselves, to self-protect and try to hide. But we know from the story of Adam and Eve, they weren't hidden. God found them. It reminded me of a story um, from my childhood. I grew up in central Georgia and um, I grew up on the same piece of land that my mom grew up on. And so she was raised on this little, it's probably 200 acre farm. And uh, whenever, you know, she and my dad got married, they built a house right next to my grandparents. It's a really like special place. Uh, but we also had like other family members who did the same thing. And so my uncle, he and his wife, they built a house kind of on the back side of the property. But then they had kids around the same age of like me and my sister. And, and, and my siblings. And so we had some like built-in friends that were cousins. And, and, and in particular, there was one, there was one guy, he was, he was the youngest of, of his sibling set. I was the oldest. Uh, but anyways, we, we got to like be really great friends and we rambled. We rambled. Like we ran through the mud. We wrecked four-wheelers. There are stories that happened that I still haven't told my mother. Like, because it would still, it would make her so mad to hear about even like almost 25 years later, right? There are four-wheeler wrecks that people shouldn't survive, but somehow God sustained us through. We ran into like barbed wire fences as we were like playing hide-and-go-seek in the night, just doing like really silly and awesome things, like just awesome things. But that was, that was where I grew up. And one of the things that we liked to do was to like go hunting. And so we would ramble and like, you know, whenever you're a little boy, one of the things that you get eventually is an artillery piece. And uh, the very first artillery piece that you get is like a Red Ryder BB gun. And I've got a son, name's Cannon, and he's got a Red Ryder BB gun. And he has to use that thing with, with you know, really close adult supervision and, and all of this kind of stuff. But eventually you figure out as a little boy that the Red Ryder BB gun that once seemed so powerful actually isn't that powerful at all. You know, you, you, you shoot it and it like, you can even see the arc of the projectile and you're like, this thing's not that powerful. And so you get what? You get the next thing, which is like a high powered pellet gun. 
And what we would do is we would like use our BB guns and pellet guns eventually and like go into the woods and shoot squirrels. And it was just awesome. Until one day, only a couple days after my cousin received his pellet gun from his parents for Christmas, that he and his sister got into an argument. Siblings do that. And he turned the pellet gun on his sister. Now, I won't go into the details. It, 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 he basically shot her in the thigh, and his parents were extremely mad at him. But what was his response to that? This eight-year-old boy at the time, he dropped the gun, and he ran as deep into the woods as he possibly could. He did what Adam and Eve did. Because he was so full of shame and guilt, and he didn't know the extent of the judgment that he would experience, that he could not bear to be around when dad came home. He had to run away. And we spent the, a whole day looking for him as he like hunkered down in the woods. To hide is to be human. We make mistakes. We fail. And the great thing about the gospel, as we understand it as Christians, is that God takes our shame and our guilt, and we no longer have to hide. But we still have this capacity within ourselves. We have a great temptation before us that we see in the life of Judas, and it's this that we confront really well, that we can masquerade as Christians, that we can let the best part of us, the unshameful part of us, to be on display amongst the church family and hold back and hide back all of the, the, the shameful things that one day may lead to our undoing. All the while, as we do this, we're seeking to hide the true self from others and we're all the while hoping to hide from God. And this seems to be what Judas did as he was among the disciples. But the question is this, even as Judas was hiding, was he really hidden? In the same way, were Adam and Eve really hidden? Was my cousin really hidden? There's only so far you can go as an eight-year-old whenever a, an entourage is looking for you. And there's only, there was only so much time that Judas would be afforded before what was on the inside would eventually be exposed. So was he really hidden? I think if you look at the role of Judas in all of the Bible, it becomes pretty clear that even Judas was not hidden. Most of us rightly think of Judas. Even when you probably heard that we were going to be talking about Judas, you were like, that sounds kind of like too heavy for a Sunday night. It's a 5 p.m. service, Blake. Like, we're the cool people. We like to chill, you know. Don't be dropping this heavy stuff on us. But, but Judas is the guy that we associate with betrayal. In, in fact, it was his sin. It was his betrayal that directly led to Jesus being crucified on the cross. And there have been many betrayals in world history. Now, live life long enough and you will be betrayed. And live long enough and you will betray someone. And if you've been betrayed, you know how painful it is. It's difficult. But there are biblical stories. There, there's stories like Cain and Abel where Cain turned on his brother, his own bloodline, Abel, and killed him. There's stories from history like Alfred Riedel, who was an Austrian who sold war secrets to the Russian that cost the lives of 500,000, half a million fellow Austrians, they estimate. 
because he betrayed his own countrymen for money. There's stories from U.S. history like Benedict Arnold, who was a commander of West Point and served a key role in the U.S. Army until he sold out to the British for a promised sum of money that was never fully paid. There are more modern stories. Anybody watch the Auburn-Georgia basketball game yesterday? Anybody? You liked it? You liked it? Okay. I see. Oh, you got an Auburn shirt on. All right. What a betrayal. What a betrayal. K.D. Johnson. Last year, K.D. Johnson wore the University of Georgia Bulldog uniform, and he, he started his career against Auburn. And then yesterday, he showed up at Stegman Arena to beat the Bulldogs wearing the Auburn Tiger uniform. What a betrayal. What a betrayal. There, there are other looming betrayals, right? You know, one, of the, one that I think about that I may have to explain to my son one day is, regarding the power of money is, is, is Freddie Freeman. Will Freddie Freeman stick around in Atlanta or will he betray the Atlanta faithful? Time will tell. There are stories of betrayal, but, but betrayal, you, you, you may or may not have even realized those names. But say the word Judas and the immediate thing that comes to mind is betrayal. His name is so synonymous with this idea of betrayal that Judas itself, the name, is a ridiculously unpopular name. I don't know anybody named Judas. And in fact, I, I did a little study, a little research to figure out how many people in America are actually named Judas. And so there's some smart people out there who gave time and energy to that. And they tell us that 130 people have a record in the U.S. today of being named Judas. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. Nobody wants that name. I was like, what about my name? It's like 70,000 people in the U.S. named Blake. And I did a little more research and I was like, how many people are named Jason? There's like 900,000 people are named Jason. It is so common that it's not cool, right? It is just not even a cool name. It is not a special name at all, okay? But Judas, the, the reason he is, his name is synonymous with betrayal is because the seeming, the, the, the surprising nature of how his betrayal unfolded. He had motives that one day led to the demise of an innocent man. He, the very act of betrayal was with what? A kiss. This is as twisted and as, as sinister as one might be able to imagine. But the irony is that God knew Judas's heart all along. And really, so did Jesus. In fact, we see in Psalm 41, in verse 9, something really interesting. We, we have these prophetic psalms that tell us, uh, that kind of whet the appetite of, uh, of, of the Old Testament reader for a Messiah who would come. And David writes this, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then next, Psalm 55 12 to 14, for it is not an enemy who insults me, that I could endure. It is not a foe who rises against me, from him I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion and close friend. We shared sweet fellowship together. We walked with the crowd into the house of God. And then another prophecy in Zechariah. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So 
I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord, to the potter. You see, this betrayal by Judas did not catch our God off guard. In fact, as God was seeking to move redemptive history forward, he used the very hard-heartedness of Judas to do something that God has chosen to do and, and, what, and to do his very will, which is this, to glorify his son in all things. That is the will of God, to glorify his son in all things, even through the betrayal of a close friend. This did not catch God by surprise. And I think it's important for us as we think about our lives. You may be experiencing the greatest highs you could imagine. You may be going through the greatest difficulty you could imagine. You may be sick or have family that's sick. You may be healthy and everybody seems to be doing well. You may have great challenges in front of you. You may have great opportunities in front of you. Whatever your lot is, Wherever God has you, his purpose in your life is to glorify his son. That is his single purpose in, in your life, no matter what you encounter, no matter what his son encountered, no matter what Judas sought to do, no matter how he decided to do it, God's ultimate purpose was to glorify his son. And in that, we can take great comfort there's not, a, there's not a ill thing that happens outside of God's sovereign design, and that gives us great comfort. It's a soft, God's sovereignty and his love and his care and his wisdom, it's a great pillow to lay your head on as you rest at night. But unfortunately, in the story that we have in the gospels of the life of Judas, he missed it. He missed that all of life was about glorifying the Messiah who was in front of him. And so he had hidden things. He was living life together, but he had a hidden life. You know, there are a few signs, I think, that we see in this unfolding narrative of, of Judas that, that show us maybe some of the things that were going on uh, in his heart and in his life. Um, <clears throat> you know, there are numerous warning signs of a hidden life. And and we've talked about some of these over the last several weeks as Jason has preached through this series, one of those being withdrawal from the church community. When we as elders get together, one of the things we, we talk about or check in on is are the people in our parishes engaging? Are we able to discern whether or not they're active among the saints? And a lot of times uh, what happens whenever we experience the guilt and shame that we talked about earlier in our lives and we've made mistakes we don't want to go around the people of God. We would rather hide away. And so what we do is we pray and we pursue um, those people. But I think some of the other signs that we see particularly in Judas's life, um, I think there's three of them. And, and the first is idolatry. Judas seemed to lose the battle of idolatry, the idolatry of money. He really did. Um, he, he seemed to lose the battle. Before we look at the particular instances uh, that he may have done that, uh, I do want to just have a brief discussion on this concept of idolatry. Um, many of you know that, you know, I've been to China at least once. 
because I've got seven adopted siblings from China. And, and whenever you go over there, one of the things you have to do is you have to go to the temple, uh, the, the Buddhist temple. And really immaculate, like mesmerizing kind of temples. And they're full of these things that we would consider idols. They're inanimate, lifeless objects that people pray to and they burn incense to and, and all of these things. And I think for the, for the longest time, that was my understanding of what it meant to have an idol, is to have some kind of inanimate, non-living thing, artifact that you look to, that you sought to appease. But I read Tim Keller's book called Counterfeit Gods, maybe 13, 14 years ago. And in that book, he's got an extremely helpful definition for what it means to have an idol. He says in this book, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Think about that in the life of Judas. What was more important to Judas than God? Anything, Keller goes on to say, that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give or what only God can provide. This is what idols are. And what can an idol be? It can be anything. It can be, it could be money, as it was in the life of Judas. It could be power. It could be being accepted by others. It could be any, num any number of things. It could be having a spouse, meeting the right one. It, it could be many, any number of these things. If, if they take our attention or rob our heart and our imagination more than God, if we look to any of these things to give us what only God can give, we have an idol in our life. And again, I think Judas lost the battle with the idol of money. When faced with money, Judas chose it over the Messiah himself. Keller goes on to argue in this book, uh, and he asks a great question that's super helpful. How do you know if you have an idol? And he gives kind of this anecdotal question. He says, an idol or counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would, would feel hardly worth living. Anything so essential that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. The challenge with idols is that they're sneaky. It, it, it's easy to go to to identify idolatry in an inanimate object. It's hard. It requires introspection. It requires self-evaluation of your own heart and your own life to know, do I have idols? And is Jesus what I need? Is Jesus what I want? Or is it Jesus plus all of these other things? What is it? For Judas, Jesus wasn't enough. He disingenuously associated with, you, with Jesus. He sought to benefit from being around Jesus. But in the end, he worshiped something else other than Jesus. The second sign I think that we see in Judas's life is um, a lack of repentance. A lack of repentance. So you see idolatry, but then you also see a lack of repentance. Um, Judas certainly had a love of money. And uh, John chapter 12, which we have up here on the screen, kind of gives us a little insight into how the disciples perceived 
Judas. Essentially, as Judas lived his life out, these are the conclusions that were made about him and his motives around money. The Apostle John says this, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You might recall, this is whenever Mary is putting ointment on Jesus. And it's a very expensive ointment. She's anointing her savior in an act of worship. And one of the disciples, in other gospels it says, and the disciples, like plural. But in John, he wants us to know, that joker was Judas, okay? Judas said this, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now at face value, that's an interesting question, right? And this is, this, is how, this is how sneaky idols are whenever we marry them with Christian religion. It seems by this question alone that he might be rightly motivated, right? Isn't it good to bless the poor? Isn't it good to give away the resources that God has given you to be a blessing to others? Isn't God glorified in that? Of course. But... John says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John wants us to know that, that, that Judas was a lover of money and he had been for a long time. Essentially, the time that God had given Judas was an opportunity for him to repent. The scriptures tell us that God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. But Judas, time after time after time, chose money over a love of God. And it eventually became evident, even among the disciples, that he had a problem with money and that he lacked a repentant heart. You know, church history is very interesting to me. Um, I hope it's interesting to you. Uh, but I went to seminary and I had to read a lot of church history books. Some of them are good. Some of them are really boring. Uh, but, but the thing that they're, because they're written boring, not because like church history is boring. They're just like, you know, they just could have been written more interestingly, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But, but I hope that you're at least a little bit interested in church history because what we're doing as a church family is the result of thousands of years of church history, right? Certainly, we, we take the commands of God uh, we seek to, to live according to the gospel of God, of God, but we see what, everything that we're doing also confirmed through a church historical tradition that is essentially a guardrail for us. One of the greatest things that, has, that have happened in church history for us, Baptists who gather, we are Protestants who gather, uh, was the, the nailing of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther on the door of the Wittenberg cathedral. And the very first of the theses that he nailed was this, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This man was confronting what he perceived to be great error that was also very powerful. And he was going to confront it head on with his name on it. And the very first statement that he said, how he went into this confrontation was by saying that Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. R repentance is faith and repentance. It's all that is required to know and be united 
to God. That is it. And Judas, even though he was with the Messiah over and over and over again, even though surely he knew that his sin was exposed among the brethren at some level, he continued to hide this thing until it surfaced. He lacked repentance. A habit of humble repentance, of humble repentance, proves that we are experiencing the grace of God. This is true of our lives. And just, I think, a good test question for each of us is this. Have you repented lately? Are, are, are you in the regular habit of confessing your sin to those around you whom you have sinned against? Certainly to God and sought to change, to pursue the way of Christ. Are you in the regular habit of repentance? If not, you may be in the way of Judas. So let's find ourselves as repentant people. Let's reject the sign of unrepentance that, that is a mark of a hidden life. The third marker, the third sign is this, and we see this certainly in Judas's life. It's consist, a consistent disregard for God's word. This is fascinating, right? I mean, Judas had a front row seat to Jesus. Judas was there when Jesus said this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy and thieves break in and steal. Judas heard that firsthand. Judas heard, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Judas heard this firsthand. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Judas the man who would, dis, who would betray his Savior for money itself heard these truths over and over and over again. In fact, he would have been responsible to communicate these truths to other people as he went and proclaimed the goodness of the gospel on behalf of Jesus to the crowds. Judas did this, but he went unchanged by God's word. And I think we also find ourselves at that same place, Right? Whenever we hear God's word, and you're hearing it tonight, you hopefully hear it whenever you do personal devotion, you hopefully hear it when you listen to your favorite podcast, you hopefully hear it whenever you're with your community group or with your friends and you're talking about the things of the Lord, but whenever we hear God's word and we go unchanged by it, what happens is we become desensitized to it. It's like learning to play the guitar. You know, I've tried to learn to play the guitar on multiple times. And I think, you know, and, and I always fizzle out. But part of the problem, maybe it's I didn't have the right teacher, but certainly I can argue part of the problem is the pain that you experience in your fingertips, right? But what happens after you play the guitar over and over again, your body learns, wait a minute, I don't want to experience this pain. And so I'm going to create this skin barrier called a callus that will reduce the amount of sensitivity that I have for what's happening as I'm playing the guitar. Your body is pretty smart like that. But here's the thing, your heart will grow callous to the things of God if you hear the word of the Lord and you choose not to respond to it humbly and positively. And callousness usually looks like apathy, by the way. It, 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 it would be rare, very rare in the life of a Christian or in the life of a church grower that you would, that you would 
verbally disdain God's word. But what it typically looks like is just apathy about what God has to say. Was this the case for Judas? Maybe. But certainly, it led to a difficult place for Judas. One of the questions that I found myself continually asking as I was studying this caricature of Judas was this, well, why did Jesus do this to Judas? John 2 tells us Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Um, he knew this. He knew that Judas would deceive him. Um, he knew that Jesus would, Judas would, would struggle with the love of money. Why did he do this? And ultimately, I think it's a te- it was a test of lordship for Judas for him personally, but it was also a test of lordship that we get to look back on historically. We look at this and our souls ought to say, am I, is Jesus enough for me? Am I loving other things or am I in the pathway of Judas? It's both a test and a sign and it all ends tragically. And that's the third point here. A hidden life ends tragically. It just does. Read with me from Matthew 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Leave us alone. That's your own mistake, buddy. Like, that's it. This is for you to deal with, not us. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place For strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. This is tragic. This is not how it's supposed to end. The thing that Judas traded his Messiah for became the means by which the chief priests and the elders bought a dump for dead strangers. That was the fruit of his exchange. And I think if you think about the arc of this entire story, this is the warning for us. Let us persevere in the faith. Let us not pursue idols. Let us not go on unrepentantly. Let us heed the word of our God, lest the things that we love in this world be equivalent to a burial place for strangers like it was for Judas. We see this in Judas's life. We see this in other testimony all around us. I'm a sports fan. And one of the major events that happened in sports world this past week was that Tom Brady retired. Any Tom Brady fans? Usually you like love him or hate him. Y'all hate him. But Tom Brady, and a, what a great athlete, what a great career, what great achievement. 22 years in the league, seven Super Bowls. In 2005, though, in a 60-minute interview, an interview by 60 Minutes, um, interviewer was Steve Croft. Tom Brady was asked, he had just won his third Super Bowl, he was 27 years old. He was asked what it meant to him. 
This is what he said. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and think that there has to be something greater out there for me? People would say, you've reached your goal. I've reached my dream. But I think, God, there has to be more than this. This can't be all that it's cracked up to be. I've done it at 27. What else is out there for me? And then Steve Croft, the interviewer said, what's the answer? Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. You can amass for yourself all of the worldly achievement imaginable and still live a life that is void of purpose and meaning that goes on after you die. And as I mentioned earlier, God's purpose in all of this is to glorify the son that he gave to us. And so let us be a church family that trusts in that, that leans into that. Really the last point here, and it's a short one, is this, that the unhidden life ends gloriously. The unhidden life ends gloriously. As tragic as the hidden life ends, the unhidden life, the transparent life ends gloriously. There's only one that's ever lived who never had the urge to hide, and it was Jesus himself. And it was that person who never experienced guilt, who took on all of the guilt and shame that causes us to run into the corner and to run into the darkness. He took the guilt and shame on himself for us. And there's also another comparison There's also another character in the story that we've read. We haven't really read much about him, but between the time that Judas made the contract with the chief priests and the elders, and he actually betrayed Jesus, see another man named Peter. And Peter was a guy in in, in the New Testament who didn't live faithfully always. Jesus told him that you would deny me, that you will deny me, and, and Peter denied him three times just as Jesus said he would. Peter was among those who fell asleep in the garden when Jesus said, keep watch, my betrayer is at hand. Peter didn't do it. But the thing that marked Peter's life, that did not mark Judas's life, is what we find in 2 Corinthians seven ten, which reads like this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I'm going to read that again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas is a warning for all of us. And so if you're a person in here and this is like new to you, um, we invite you. Our, our Lord tells us that his burden is easy and his yoke is light come to Jesus. He has taken on the guilt and the shame that you carry. Trust in him. He's strong enough to bear it and he's willing to bear it. For the person who is a church member called an unrepentant sin, use this warning. Let God use this warning in your life to turn from idols, to repent, to heed God's word and pursue faithfulness. And for the Christian, For the Christians in the room, you know, if you thoughtfully and rightly read this passage, you don't come away thinking, Judas was a total scoundrel. If you thoughtfully and rightly read it. Of course, Judas's sin directly led to Jesus being nailed on a cross, but so did yours. 
and so did mine. Jesus willingly went to the cross for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of your gospel. God, we thank you for um, just the picture, the warning that you provided to us in the gospels of in the person of Judas. Um, God, far be it from us that we would hear your word and be apathetic towards it. Give us the grace that we need, the humility that we need to move forward, trusting in you and heeding your word and repenting where we need to. Lord, we thank you so much for the, the gift of, of baptism that we'll witness here in just a moment. And Lord, as, as uh, the people who are coming to be baptized come forward here in just a moment, Lord, I pray that this would be just a special day for them. Um, that even as we witness this, God, as we respond through song, as we respond through seeing baptism, God, that you would stir a new passion, that you would stir our affections for you. In Jesus' name, amen.